What is the sin that leads to death? Well, Jesus spoke of this as the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I think that another passage that may clarify this to us the best is Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. Hebrews 10, 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of, of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? That's the blasphemy of the Spirit. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I think that we should take 1 John 5.16 with Hebrews 10.26-31 and the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, Mark 3, verses 20-30, to 30, that these all are talking about the same issues. Okay, um, how about the difference between asking God for his will to be done and then asking for his judgment on things. So how, when we pray for justice and judgment, do we also submit that to the will of God and for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. How do we make a distinction between praying for justice and... Making sure that it's consistent with the will of God. Yes. How do we know that our prayers for justice in a particular circumstance is consistent with the will of God? We have to know what's in the word of God. We have to know what is in the word of God. Because whether we pray for love for somebody or justice... We have to make sure in the circumstances that it is consistent with the word of God. This is why it says in Proverbs 28, verse 9, He who turns away his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. 28, 9, Proverbs 28, 9, He who turns away his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. That means that we can pray an abomination to God. We might think it's a good prayer. Whether that's a prayer of love or a prayer of justice. We might think it's a good prayer. Or if it's a prayer for a request. We want something. We might think it's all well and good. But if it's inconsistent with the Bible. He who turns away his ear from listening to the law. That prayer is an abomination. Another place to look for this would be James 4, 1 to 4. Um, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with evil motives that you may spend it on your pleasures. So then we check our motives too to see. So then if we're praying for judgment out of a vindictive spirit or out of an evil desire, then that's not good to God. It's not acceptable. It needs to be a desire for justice and also like in the example of the apostle Paul before he became a believer he was persecuting the church so if they were praying for justice upon him judgment but then God later saved him 
how would they know beforehand that God was going to save him and that if they were praying for judgment against him, that that wasn't consistent with the will of God? Does that make sense? Yes. Well, we don't know. We don't know. We just pray according to what we do know. We pray according to the best that we can discern about our motives and intentions and our desire to be consistent with the word of God. But God can do whatever he wants because there is his revealed will, and we ought to pray according to his revealed will. But then God may do according to his secret will, contrary to his revealed will that we understand in a particular situation. Right? Uh, For example, it's good for us to pray for longevity, for us to live, live a long life and to be able to see our children and our grandchildren and to see them come to the Lord and be built up in the faith. Who doesn't want to see that? Everybody desires to see that. But, and God, according to his revealed will, wants that. He asks us to pray for that. But in his secret will, God may take away the life of one of our children before we can see that or before he can reach a certain age or whatever. He may, he may not give that. Or he may not give one of our children salvation. So God can do whatever he wants, but we just need to be faithful to his revealed will, and he will reward us according to the way that we pray according to his revealed will. Now that begs the question, somebody might ask, why do you say revealed will and secret will, secret or mysterious hidden will? Deuteronomy 29.29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our sons, that we may observe all the words of this law. So the revealed will is in the Bible, all the words of this law. But the secret will are those things that God will do in this world that he has not disclosed to us in particular circumstances. For example, with our children. We pray for their salvation, we hope for it, but it may not happen. But our prayers for their salvation are not sinful, even though God in his secret will decides he's not going to save one or more of our children. It doesn't make it sin. Nor would it be sin to pray for justice and then God later save that person. Yes. Because we don't know the secret will of God. We just pray with what we have before us. Yes. Neither would it be a sin to pray for justice for somebody who's been persecuting us, and but God in his secret will decides to save him it would not be a sin that's the corollary uh, ezekiel eighteen twenty three and 32 uh, should we rejoice over the death of the wicked when it says that god has no pleasure or delight in the death of the wicked okay when when it says in ezekiel 18 uh, for example 18 uh, 32, for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God, therefore repent and live. God is declaring this in terms of his revealed will, in terms of his external call and preaching of the word. This is what God presents so that the elect will listen to this, hear it, and not experience death. He does not desire and take the light in the death of the, of the wicked in terms of calling the elect to repentance. The problem is, in this passage, people th- say and think that this passage means he doesn't take the light 
or the opposite, God has remorse and sorrow and grief when a wicked man dies without repentance. But that's not true either. There are many places in the book of Ezekiel when God does the very opposite. He has no remorse in the death of the wicked. He does not have any remorse. Example, Ezekiel chapter 24. Ezekiel chapter 24, 14. 24, 14. This is the same prophet. This means that we cannot make Ezekiel 18 contradict Ezekiel 24. Ezekiel 18 cannot contradict Ezekiel 24, 14, which says, I, the Lord, have spoken. It is coming, and I shall act. I shall not relent, and I shall not pity, and I shall not be sorry. According to your ways and according to your deeds, I shall judge you, declares the Lord God. There are many such verses in the book of Ezekiel. God says he's going to punish them. There's no relenting, no pity, no sorrow. He's going to judge. So 2414 cannot contradict 1832. 1832 is God's appeal to people to repent. But 2414 is God's judgment on people. And when he judges them... He's not going to regret it or have remorse about it. He's not going to walk around moping and sorrowful. In fact, in that context, Ezekiel's wife was to die suddenly, and Ezekiel was not allowed to moan and groan and be sorry about the death of his wife. And then the people are going to look at Ezekiel. Ezekiel, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you dying for the death of your, I mean, crying for the death of your wife? And Ezekiel's message to them in the same chapter 24, listen. It's going to be so miserable for you, you people, because of your lack of repentance, that when the Babylonians come and destroy your own children and your own relatives, you're going to be so appalled and it's going to be so heavy on you, you won't even be able to cry about it. You're going to have this internal turmoil as you are stripped away of your loved ones and dragged off to a foreign land in exile. Same. So... No regret, no sorrow. It may also say, just one more verse to answer that. This is in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 18 is in the Old Testament. And so is Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28, 28, 63. And it shall come about that as the Lord delighted over you to prosper you and multiply you, so the Lord will delight over you to make you perish and destroy you. And you shall be torn from the land where you are entering to possess it. That word, delight, it's the same word, same original Hebrew word. The word delight delights to prosper the people and delights to destroy them. He delights in both. Uh, the thought just struck me before we move on any further. I may not have fully answered that First John 5.16 question. Basically, he's talking about, according to Mark 3, 20 to 30, and Hebrews 10, 26 to 31, he's talking about people who have come to this knowledge of the truth. That is, they have it sitting in front of them. They may have even embraced it for a, a temporary time, but they have rejected it. They spit on it. They, they insult it. 
they walk away from it, either overtly by their words or by their behavior, or implicitly they live a massive contradiction. These are the people who have no salvation. These are the people who are so stubborn and hard-hearted that there's no prayer going to change them. That's what John means in 1 John 5, 16. There are some people who are committing a sin not leading to death. Pray for them. And others who are committing the sin leading to death. I, I do not say you should make request for this. Okay. Uh, Jude 1, verse 9 uh, says, When the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So there, Michael won't pronounce a judgment. Uh, so how, is, how should we understand that in relation to uh, these imprecatory prayers that oh. are asking for judgment? Okay. Yes, Jude 9. What Jude means right there, NASB says, railing judgment. Okay? He did not d dare to pronounce against him a railing judgment. What Jude means is, a railing judgment based on his authority, he, he did not dare to do that. He did it based on the Lord's authority. That's why he said, the Lord rebuke you. And the problem is authority. Look at the previous verse. Verse 8. Yet in the same manner, these men, false teachers, also by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. They have no sense of authority. They, they usurp authority. They're like Miriam and Aaron against Moses, Numbers 12. Or they are like Korah and his company in Numbers chapter 16. They have no sense of proper authority, and they think that they have all the, the wisdom in the world, that they can usurp authority and do whatever they want. So that's the real issue. But what, his, what he's saying in verse 9 is that Michael the archangel, a very high and esteemed angel recognize that he, on the basis of his own authority, could not pronounce a railing judgment against them. So he has to call upon God. Michael, the angel, archangel, has enough humility to recognize he can't pronounce a judgment against people based on his authority, based on his power, his goodness, his office. No, he has to call on God. The Lord rebuke you. And that's the same with us. That's why we pray to God. We can't rebuke people on the basis of our own authority. We do it based on the authority of what the Word of God teaches about it and based on God's name. We do it in the name of God. So, again, a railing judgment doesn't mean no judgment, but a railing judgment based on his own usurped authority. He didn't do it like that. He called on God. The Lord rebuke you. Uh, could you uh, deal with then uh, like a passage like Psalm 58 where he's praying for God's judgment upon rulers and then 1 Timothy chapter 2 where Paul is saying that we should pray for kings and those who are in authority. How do those go together and then could you talk about how you yourself would pray the three types of prayers that you pray for leaders? Yes. Okay. R ruler, ruler. Yes. Psalm 58 is against the rulers, the judges, the unjust judges. They are unjust. But in, in 1 Timothy 2, he's praying for the salvation of rulers, of kings and all who are in authority. Because even though the, the political landscape is full of corruption and judgment needs to be pronounced against them, 
there's still among them a few who may turn to Christ or who do know Christ, like Joseph in the book of Genesis. He was the second ruler of Egypt. Like Esther, queen in the court of Ahasuerus. Or like Daniel, the prophet. He is a, a servant, an official in the court of Babylon and then Persia. So th- there are people like that who can and will have an influence on other people in the government, even unto, this, uh, unto their salvation. So pray for kings and all who are in authority so that those kinds of people might be saved. Then, if you are praying for a specific person and you don't know how to take it, how to take him, you have to pray according to what he is doing, what he's saying and doing. So I, I pray a, a threefold kind of prayer. The first one, this is what you alluded to, the first one is I pray for that officials, that political officials, repentance. Repentance means turning from sin, believing in the gospel of Christ, and with that prayer is an assumption that he will live according to Christ, Christ's word. So my first prayer is repentance for any given individual. Repentance. Secondly is righteousness. By righteousness, I don't mean spiritual righteousness in the complete sense. I mean civil righteousness. That is, there are unbelievers, some of them, they still have a conscience and they still know the difference between right and wrong. They know it's wrong to, to murder and they know wrong, that it's wrong to kidnap and to steal money in a bank and things like that. They know that. So I pray that those political officials would have at least that sense if not a full Christian sense, at least that civil sense of righteousness because of the conscience and the law of God written on their heart. Romans 2, 14 to 16 explains that. That they would have that and carry out law and order for our society. Because that will help the Christian church. According to 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 7, it will help the Christian church. So if they don't have the righteousness, then I pray for retribution. Retribution is what we're talking about today. Justice and punishment condemnation upon those who adamantly refuse to do the right thing to help people generally and the Christian church specifically. Repentance, righteousness, retribution. Like reading, writing, and arithmetic. Okay, okay. okay one last one. Uh, Matthew twenty-five forty-one uh, says that God's intent was he prepared hell for the devil and his angels. He doesn't say for wicked men there. Uh, we've contended that that's a part of the purpose of God, to prepare them for judgment. So uh, why does Jesus not include them in hell prepared for the devil and his angels? Okay. For one, uh, there's a, a couple of ways to interpret it. But I w- we have to understand that in this context, he is talking about people. Is he not? He is addressing people. From Matthew 25, 31 to 46, he's talking about people, righteous people and wicked people, the sheep and the goats. He's talking about those who manifest righteousness and those who don't manifest righteousness. So the context is people. And when he says, and he'll say to those on his left, depart from me, those are the people on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. That means that with Jesus' words, he did intend to include people in hell. He is including people in hell. He's not eliminating the possibility of people going to hell. That's not really the issue here. But people who want to make that the issue say, 
that there is no hell, people don't go to hell. All people, wicked people, whether, whether the, some of the uh, thugs and tyrants of history or, or gangsters and whatever, drug dealers, these people, even they, they say, will go to hell. I mean, will go to heaven. And they say this less often because it's embarrassing. They believe that demons and the devil will also go to heaven. Universalism is what that is. Universalism says that wicked people, no matter how wicked they are, the devil and demons also, they all go to heaven. That's what they do with Matthew 25, 41. They can't do that. Because in the context, he is talking about people. People have to be included. Then, the greater difficulty is that if the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels, people take that to mean that before the world existed or at the beginning of the world, God prepared the eternal fire, but God didn't know and God didn't intend for people to fall and to follow Satan, and he didn't intend for that to happen, so God had plan B. They take that verse to imply that God had plan B. Oh, the people also, they, they follow the serpent in the garden, so now they have to go somewhere too, so I'll just put them in the same bunch, and I'll put them in there with the devil and his angels. That's the way they take it. The verse doesn't need to mean that. It doesn't need to mean that. Because he didn't say it was prepared only for the devil and his angels. It doesn't say it was prepared only for the devil and his angels. And why do I say that? You see, here's a comparison. Remember, if you read Luke 24 on the resurrection, Luke says that there were a couple of angels at the tomb. If you read Matthew 28, he just mentions one of the angels. But Matthew 28, he doesn't say there was only one angel. He doesn't use that modifier, only one. He, says, he just says there was an angel and this is what the angel said. If Matthew had said there was only one, then there would be a contradiction between Matthew 28 and Luke 24. But there is no contradiction. And, and those judges and, and juries in courtrooms, they know this. They know the difference between this. If, if one witness says there was only one man at the scene, and another one says, no, no, there were two men at the scene, and there were only two, not just one, only two, not three, not four, only two, then you have a contradiction between the witnesses. If that were the case between Matthew and Luke, then there would be a contradiction. Or if Jesus had said here, it was only prepared for the devil and his angels, then there would be a contradiction between this verse and other verses. There would be a contradiction within the context because he's talking about people going there. And verse 46, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The whole thing would be a contradiction if Jesus meant only for the devil and his angels. But he didn't say that. He didn't say that. There's no manuscript that says that. There's no textual variation or anything like that. He said, prepared for the devil and his angels. But that doesn't exclude men because it's implied. The context is about men. It's, the context is about them. 
Здорово.